Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If a scientist gets a counterintuitive result, that's a treasure. That's a triumph. That's a gem. Wow. If only. But when philosophers find things counterintuitive, they say, well, no, that's counterintuitive. That can't be right. And philosophers, by over-trusting their intuitions, are a, a systematically regressive uh, research program. They're, they're insisting on yesterday's science. They're insisting on old-fashioned ideas, which they've grown up with, and instead of taking a deep breath and staring into the void and thinking, gosh, maybe my intuitions about this are wrong. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 194. And this episode is with Dan Dennett, who's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Tufts University, where he was co-director of the Center for Cognitive Studies and the Austin B. Fletcher Professor of Philosophy. And Dan is one of the most recognized philosophers in the world. He's made major contributions to the philosophy of mind and biology. And he's also known as one of the four horsemen of atheism. So this is one of those conversations that I've been dreaming about having since well before I started this podcast. I did an IB program in high school, if any of you listeners are familiar with that, where we had to take a philosophy course called Theory of Knowledge. And when I was clearly very into it, one of my teachers... Uh, gave me Dan's book, Consciousness Explained. And while I read the words in the book, I definitely didn't understand any of it, but it still got me sufficiently hooked that I probably read about seven or eight of his books by the time I graduated from undergrad. And then now here we are today. So Dan's latest book is I've Been Thinking, which is autobiographical and catalogs his life and career, though much of what we discuss comes from his earlier book, From Bacteria to Bach and Back, which is something of a greatest hits of his philosophical work. So more particularly, we talk about the origin of life and reasons, the evolution of music, Robert Sapolsky, who was the guest of the last episode, 193, and their dispute over the nature of free will and whether or not we have it. We talk about famous thought experiments in the philosophy of mind, the origin of consciousness, and 
the relationship between mind and language. So there are links to those two books I've been thinking in from from Bacteria to Bach and Back in the description. Uh, reviews, likes, subscribes, comments. I love those. Then thank you to all you geeselings. I am so appreciative of those of you who have joined the Patreon. And if any of you others would like to join and support the show, you can find a link to that in the description where you'll also get show notes and a link to an ad-free RSS feed. So now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Dan. Given the recent release of your autobiography, I've been thinking, I thought that a great use of our time would be to, to discuss some of your most influential ideas over the years. And since your paper, Where Am I?, was, if, if I'm not mistaken, chronologically the work that launched your career in certain ways, it seems like a good place to start before we circle back to natural selection. So what is the, the general story told in the paper, and what does it imply about the relationship we believe we have with our minds? Well, my Where Am I story was uh, uh, one of the first uh, explorations of a philosophical uh, idea, the idea of the rain in the vat that, that is kept alive and can think. And I imagine that my brain was... Uh, surgically removed, but connected to my body by radio links, and uh, that I was sent on a mission uh, uh, deep underground where radiation would have fried my brain if I hadn't left it behind. And then that turned into a, an adventure where I had a duplicate brain, uh, a computer duplicate brain. And then, and the, I think the the main point of the the main points of the story were first, uh, there's a scene where I'm looking at my brain in the vat for the first time, and I'm thinking, here I am staring at my own brain in a, in a bubbling fluid. And then I wonder, well, why am I not thinking, here I am being stared at by my own eyes? Because the brain that's doing that thinking is in the vat, uh, but it seems that I'm outside looking in. And so one of the points I wanted to make is where you think your mind is has much more to do with where your eyes and ears are than where your brain is. For all you know, you, maybe your brain's been moved into your chest and you've stuffed lungs into your, into your cranium or something. You wouldn't know. Uh, so that was one point I wanted to make was that we're not authoritative about where our minds are. Uh, that is where the work is being done, where the actual processes are happening. And the other point I wanted to stress is that um, we can't even tell, we, we have actually underprivileged access to the causation of our own thoughts. We think them, they're ours, we're pretty sure they're ours, but we have no real access to what's making that happen. And if you want to understand how consciousness works, you're going to have to do third-person science. You're going to have to do brain science, neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, 
computer science and so forth, because only a third-person investigation of the scientific questions is ever going to answer that question. So maybe just to recapitulate a little bit, from the first-person standpoint, we don't have the sort of privileged access to the workings of consciousness or the mind the way that people have thought since Descartes, perhaps. And this no, leads... since Descartes, really. Uh, his famous thought ex experiment of, a, of the evil demon and imagining that he, he doesn't have a body uh, uh, is it's a brilliant thought experiment, a brilliant intuition, but I think it's just wrong. Uh, and he set philosophers off on a, a wild goose chase that's lasted hundreds of years because it's given people the idea that they are the uh, sometimes even incorrigible or infallible judges of what their own thoughts are and that they are their own thoughts. And, uh, and, and that this is... Uh, a privileged vantage point they have. Well, of course, there is a sense in which um, I know what I'm thinking before you do or better than you do. But that's that's only an empirically, uh, uh, usually guaranteed advantage, and it can be overridden by science. And the idea that people might say, well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not what's happening in your consciousness right now. Let me tell you what's happening in your consciousness. And you can be proven wrong. And that in itself is a fact that uh, drives some people just wild. They, they are so unhappy with that idea. But that's the truth. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I've tried over the years to show why the claims of uh, first-person authority are not what they seem to be. There is a sort of first-person authority. That's why I, if I want to know what you're thinking, I ask you. Who would know better? And in general, you are the go-to person about what you're thinking. But that doesn't mean that you have to be right. It just means that given the way language works, uh, uh, we couldn't do better than asking you, we, if we want to find out what you're actually thinking, we have to start by asking you. And at that point, you, you're, the, you're the spokesperson of your own mind. Uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a position that, that, that you can fail to uh, execute correctly. Yeah, and as you said a few minutes ago, the rejection of the ultimate authority of the first-person standpoint, it leads to your concept of heterophenomenology. I'm not sure if yeah, you yeah. used that word. And the importance of the third-person stance taken toward understanding the mind and consciousness. And so in the interest of building back up towards mind and consciousness, I'd like to start with the beginning of From Bacteria to Bach and Back, which in I've been thinking you think of as the sort of the culmination 
uh, your career's worth of work. And so the first question I have regarding that book is what it means to think of the origin of life as the origin of reasons. And as I was reading, this uh, locution reminded me of my conversation with your colleague at Tufts, Michael Levin, who views intelligence as problem solving yes. and inextricably connected to competence. Yes. Yeah. Um, David Deutsch, the Oxford physicist, has a wonderful TED talk called The Great Monotony, where he talks about how for several billion years, roughly 14 billion years, nothing much happened and nothing did anything. And then life got started and then doers appeared, things that didn't just happen, but things where there was an agent that was doing something. And uh, this changed everything, and it changed everything very fast, and it's speeding up ever since. So the great monotony ended, and life flourished, and there were many more things possible that were not possible before. Many new combinations came into existence. Complex molecules, very complex molecules, macromolecules, proteins and things like that, motor proteins and ribosomes, and all these amazing parts of a living cell. And they all come about because of evolution. Evolution is what makes that all possible. And it's very, it's as hard to say when life began as it is to say when consciousness begins. If we're good Darwinians, we recognize that gradualism reigns. There are lots of false starts. There are lots of partial solutions to problems, and uh, who's to say when the first actual replicator came into existence? Uh, one of my favorite points about the very earliest days of life is that the first replicator didn't have to replicate fast because it didn't have any competition. Maybe it took a thousand years for it to make an offspring. Who cares? Uh, time doesn't matter. But once replication gets going, uh, replicating faster and more efficiently becomes uh, uh, a desideratum, a goal. Now, the first living things didn't represent their goals, but they acted as if they had them. And they acted for reasons, and their parts survived and flourished for reasons that they didn't have to recognize. Um, most of the reasons in the living world do not have to be recognized by the creatures that who, whose, whose equipment is explained by those reasons. Uh, and so we have what I call competence without comprehension, which is... Uh, wonderful capacities, wonderful competences, wonderful abilities, which the owners of those abilities don't have to appreciate, don't have to understand, don't have to know why they're good, but they are good. They lead to your having more offspring. 
than the competition. And that's what starts the great ball rolling. That's from bacteria. Then eventually we get to Bach, who is uh, not just alive, but and not just doing things for reasons, but quite capable of reflecting on those reasons and revising those reasons and arguing about those reasons and sharing them and learning from others and building on huge networks of cultural uh, creation that went before him and figuring out the reasons why some things work and why some things don't. So you get self-conscious reasoning, which I say uh, lags wait. There were reasons long before there were reasoners. Uh, Mother Nature, evolution, did things for reasons that evolution didn't have to understand. But we, in retrospect, can look back and say, oh, this is why this works. This is the reason why the parts are arranged this way. If you if you look at if you look at something like uh, like a ribosome, and see all of the intricate moving parts that are clicking away, the fantastic rate and making copies of the DNA, um, there are reasons why the parts are arranged that way. But nobody, the first people to understand what the the first thinkers to understand what those reasons were were the were the microbiologists who who. Who, who won the Nobel Prize for working out the uh, structure of the ribosome. Before that, nobody knew what the reasons were. They didn't have to. I hope you'll permit me a, a digression for a moment, but sure. you just mentioned Bach. Of course, Bach is in the title. I know Doug Hofstadter is a great friend of yours, and yes. I, I read your book, The Mind's Eye. But before reading... I've been thinking, I did not realize just how vital music was to your life. And yes, it's, it's, been, it's been a wonderful part of my life. Mm -hmm. Music and sculpting both. I, also, I, I didn't know about sculpture either. But this is the digression. I'm, I'm curious. So obviously, music, it, I mean, Bach here, he plays a, a small role in From Bacteria to Bach and Back. But I'm wondering to what extent these creative extracurricular endeavors, which clearly played a big role in your social life and your creative life, but if you think that they had a big impact on your philosophy in any way, even if it was indirect. Well, of course, of course they did. And, and yes, it's indirect. But uh, let's just list off the obvious. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. It, I'm a notorious optimist, and I think that's because I've been buoyed all along by a great love of music and uh, a, an appreciation of how it can lift your spirits and bring people together. And uh, I've sung in a lot of singing groups, and singing in choruses and choirs is just a joyous team effort and unlike team sports which are also wonderful but but it's you're not trying to beat anybody you're just trying to make this beautiful thing together and uh, uh, so I think ideally an academic life should have the same spirit the spirit of let's let's all join hands and do this together and help each other out 
and uh, not not bitch and fight and criticize, but help people build their ideas into better ideas. Well, you you maybe I, I getting the wording wrong, but I think you just said uh, singing was just a, a buoyant team effort. And yes, maybe maybe we'll come back to it, but I can imagine that your like deep understanding of this or feeling of this might have, I mean, this is totally speculation, but indirectly contributed to your uh, appreciation of the importance of language, for instance, for mind yeah. or something yes. like this. Yes. Um, language and music go together very well. Uh, and of course, uh, some people say that uh, language is a kind of music. Well, or that music is a kind of language. Uh, there's smattering of truth in both in both sayings, but I think they're also profoundly different, and it's not all that useful uh, uh, an analogy. Uh, I've I have said that um, human language. Um, uh, and human consciousness are like, it's like the relationship between human language and birdsong. Birdsong is wonderful, but, you know, you can't write poetry in birdsong and you can't, you can't talk somebody out of something. Well, you can threaten them with birdsong, but you, you, you can't persuade them uh, to change their mind about something other than attacking you or something. Uh, but human language is a breathtakingly powerful communicative medium. And animal languages are low-dimensional shadows of human language. And human Animal consciousness is a low-dimensional shadow of human consciousness. I think this point bothers a lot of people because they think it's being, you know, mean or tone-deaf about animals. But um, I think, in fact, we we should face the facts and recognize that even our our wonderful dogs and our Dolphins and our parrots and our whales and our elephants uh, have compared to your average six-year-old human being have really impoverished consciousness, uh, and it's it's a question of what can they do with it, and it's it's not clear that they can do the things that really matter that we do all the time with our consciousness, so. Uh, but when I uh, argue, as I do, in spite of howls of disbelief coming from many quarters, that human language depends depends on human language to a very great degree. I'm not saying that human like human consciousness is just talking to yourself, although that's an important part of it. But that it's Acquiring language, acquiring interpersonal communication is what creates the arena for the self-stimulation that is thinking. And you can't do much thinking until you've got that arena in your head where, where that can happen. 
And it's not the Cartesian theater. It's a place where a lot of work gets done. And it wouldn't be able to happen if you didn't have language. Before we get back to our main thread, I uh, a question occurred to me about music. I've talked to uh, Daniel Levitin on the show and then yes. also Steven Pinker. And when I talked to Daniel Levitin, I asked him about the evolution of music. And he mentioned this famous debate that he had with Steven Pinker, where Daniel thinks that music is an evolved faculty. And I think Steve thinks it's uh, a spandrel, so to speak. And I'm wondering where you weigh in on this debate. Well, it's, of course, it's a culturally evolved phenomenon. Um, and cultural evolution is Darwinian, too. And uh, tunes are memes. They're great examples of memes. Songs are memes. Symphonies are memes. Dawkins' term applies to them. They have their own fitness, and they depend on reproduction to be prolonged. Uh, it's not the quality of the paper or the ink <laughs> and the copies of... of uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that explains why it's still extant today. It's that people keep wanting to play it. And so each playing of uh, Beethoven's Ninth is, uh, is another replication of that wonderful uh, set of memes. And so music, of course it's evolved. Um, but we can break that down into, really in, into two parts. Uh, where the boundaries don't matter much, actually. That is, there's the cultural transmission and mutation and adaptation of music. And then there's the slower genetic response to that. Uh, just as our brains, our brains and not the brains of chimpanzees, have evolved to be good language processors, good word processors, in effect. Um, our brains have evolved to be good music processors, too. Now there's some interesting evidence that some animals, as it were, appreciate music to some degree. And so that's plausible. Uh, nothing counterintuitive about that. Uh, the brain has lots of dimensions and lots of rhythms and uh, tunings, and that some tunings would be pleasurable, would, would be uh, uh, rewarding to other minds, to other brains, is quite likely. But in our case, of course, it has been refined and refined and elaborated and extrapolated, multiplied many-fold. This sort of uh, binary evolution and that there's a biological component and a cultural component, I think is really important. And it also anticipates the evolution of language itself, which we'll get to in maybe your, your uh, discussions with people like Steve and then Chomsky. But I'd like to get back to that main thread. And you mentioned replicators and i think it's worth dwelling on them more for a moment since this is a crucial concept not just with regard to genes but also with regard to memes 
And for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, or perhaps Richard Dawkins, what is a replicator and how is it vital to natural selection, which is also an, an often misunderstood yes. concept? Yes. Um, the idea of natural selection is the best idea ever. Uh, but it's <laughs> I agree. also but it but it's also um tends to get misunderstood or under under understood. <laughs> that is people don't understand enough about how powerful it is and what it requires. But you get you get evolution by natural selection. Wherever you have a plethora of candidates that are not all alike, where some candidates are uh, better equipped just by just by chance, just by luck, better equipped to deal with whatever the current circumstances are. And they're the ones that are going to have more offspring. And so that's the selection step. But there also has to be mutation because there has to be a continual influx of, of novelty. Uh, uh, it's a sort of arms race that gets started where uh, uh, if a population all pretty much settles on a certain peak in the adaptive landscape, as we say, it's they're all doing pretty darn well and hard to improve. But then if something comes along that does a little bit better, then it may start to out-replicate the earlier population uh, because of a mutation that it happens to have. And then you get then you get evolution that takes you all the way from single-celled uh, uh, protists, uh, single-celled um, uh, things like bacteria and archaea, and then you get multicellular life. And these eons of and phases of change uh, that um, uh, John Maynard Smith and Zothmary so brilliantly describe in the major transitions of evolution, where you go from single cells and you go, you you get sex, you get you get multicellular life, you get language and culture. Uh, these are major transitions that, where the process of evolution itself evolves and becomes a more efficient explorer of the space of possibilities. I, I like I like a term that that Stu Kaufman uh, introduced: the adjacent possible. And there are things that are possible now. Tigers are possible now. They weren't possible. A billion years ago, uh, they're possible now. They may not be possible in the future, but they're possible now. Uh, there's a lot. There are many more things possible now than there used to be, and this is, in fact, a very important philosophical point. Because when people think about determinism, they often think, well. I mean, if determinism is true, then then you know life has no meaning, and we don't have any free will. But the fact is, determinism reigns, but inevitability shifts. There are lots of things that are evitable today that weren't inevitable, that were inevitable before, uh, and evitability has been evolving. 
at ever faster rates now than ever before. And it's evitability that matters. So if you think, well, gee, if determinism is true, my life is inevitable, that sentence is actually nonsensical. Your life is unavoidable? What does that mean? There are all kinds of things. If I throw a brick at you and you duck, you've avoided the brick. If you were blind, you wouldn't see it coming and you wouldn't duck. But thanks to eyes, you can duck. It's a new kind of evitability, and it makes a difference to your fitness. So uh, the confusion about free will is fundamentally a, a, a confusion about thinking that causation and control are the same thing. They're not. Causation is causation, and control is causation with feedback and look-ahead. You think about firing a bullet. You're in control of where the muzzle is pointing until you pull the trigger. Once the bullet leaves the muzzle, you no longer control it. It's going to go where it's going to go. It's not in your control anymore. And it may swerve off in this way or be blown by the wind or who knows what. But a guided missile can be controlled. And that's a fundamental difference. But for control, you have to have communication back and forth. You have to have information passing back and forth in order for, for remote control to be possible. But we are, are not, in general, remotely controlled. We're onboard controlled. We're self-controlled. We're autonomous. And an autonomous being is just as determined as a stone rolling down a mountainside. But an autonomous being might be a skier racing down the mountainside and be in control. That's the difference that matters, being in control as opposed to just being caused to go where you go. Of course we're caused to go where we go. But if, if we're autonomous, we have self-control to some degree. And that's what matters. Speaking of determinism, as I mentioned when we were emailing beforehand, I just spoke with Robert Sapolsky uh, of Stanford here, and I think his episode will probably come out right before this one. And we talked all about free will and his hard determinist standpoint in which there is absolutely no such thing. And he mentioned that you two were going to be Duh. Yeah, we're we're gonna have Maybe. a we're gonna have a debate or a discussion uh, uh, next week. Yeah, oh, that'll be great. But I, I'm curious. Uh, this won't. I'm sure this won't come out uh, before your debate comes out. But he he casts you, and he he uses these words. You're you're the villain of his new book. Uh, yeah, yeah, Determined. but but that's because first of all, he doesn't realize that his main point of objection against me is one that I myself pointed out back in 2004 when I said I was wrong, the, the marathon example. And uh, yeah, he's right about that. I was wrong about that. I said so 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, 
but I give I give him credit for pointing it out. He's right. I was wrong about that. I regret that. That was a mistake. But once you get rid of that, there's so much agreement between us. Actually, we both agree that libertarian free will is nonsense. We both agree that contracausal free will was is a sort of incoherent magical notion that there's no such thing. But where we disagree is on whether the kind of free will that's worth wanting can exist in a deterministic world. And I say, yes, it can. Of course it can. And he's a good example of somebody. You can count on him. He's reliable. He's in control. That's it. That's what free will is. Some people aren't in control through no fault of their own, and we don't say they have, we say they don't have free will. But the ones that are in control of themselves and not being controlled by other agents, those are the ones that have free will. I, I'd like to try something out, and you can tell me if you think it's on the mark, but I'm, I have a sense that this, is, this might be the heart of your argument against him. His argument against free will is sort of like saying, okay, we once, our, our folk intuition about consciousness was once dualist. But now that we realize that dualist consciousness isn't an actuality, we're just not conscious. But what you would say is, no, we are conscious. It's just not what we thought consciousness was. And yeah. consciousness is just a word, and we get to determine what it means. And the parallel to free will is that he takes free will to mean this pre-theoretical folk idea of free will, which is freedom from causation. And you would say, no, we agree. We don't have that. But free will is just a term, and we can stipulate that it means the sort of free will that we believe we have and then explain why we have it. And, and you know, if, it were, if I were just stipulating out of the clear blue sky, that would be one thing. But in fact, I say, look at all the things that my kind of free will has that are important and that we want. We want to be in control of our lives. We want to be responsible. We want to be, we want to be seen to be responsible agents. We want to be able to sign contracts and make promises, and be trusted, and loved, and all of those things follow very nicely from my concept of free will, which is also, by the way, the laws, pretty much the laws concept of free will. When I, when I went to sign the mortgage papers when we bought a house a few years back, I was amused that the notary public asked me, was I signing this of my own free will? I said, yes, I am. And what I meant by that was, I'm not the, I'm not a zombie. I'm not I'm not crazy. I'm not being remotely controlled by other agents. Uh, I'm not uh, under threat of murder and torture by some evil blackmailer. I'm signing this of my own free will. That's good. That's what we want. And it's the thing to understand about free will. It's not a metaphysical condition. It's an achievement. It's, you grow into it. Some people, alas, don't. They don't grow into it because they have rotten childhoods or because they have brain damage 
or some other terrible accident befalls them. And we have to take care of them. We have to, uh, uh, and we, we want to take care of them. And it's no, through no fault of their own that they don't have free will. By the way, as an 81-year-old, I can say, my future probably holds a period, unless I die suddenly, where I will lose my free will, and I'll no longer be competent to sign the contract, or to, for that matter, to change my will, or, or, or to, uh, to make a, a binding promise. You can lose your free will. And free will is a matter of having a set of competences, you might call them moral competences, which most people have. Most people. It's it's not it's not a hundred percent, but it's probably ninety percent of people, you know, above above the age of 18, let's say, that, that have reliable free will that, that, that can play the role of a promiser, a citizen, a, a drinker, a driver. You can't get a driver's license until you're 16. Uh, that's an arbitrary date, but it's... You have to... You have to pick a date just so that the law is understood and not too cumbersome. And so we, we understand that there are people that we cannot trust to control themselves. They don't have free will. But it's something most of us cherish, and for very good reasons. So I've read your book, Freedom Evolves, and then there's also your earlier work, Elbow Room, which yes. I, I mean, I'd point our, our listeners to if they want a more thorough defense and understanding of your view on free will. But returning to, I think you said freedom grows. Uh, returning back to this idea of freedom growing, developing, yeah. evolving. I am wondering if, just to make this a bit more concrete, we have my cat here. And I'm wondering why or if you would say that my cat has free will or how she would, how her free will might compare on a spectrum to the free will of my watch, which is just a mechanism. Because I think that this also parallels what you said earlier about consciousness not being all or nothing. Yeah, there, yeah, there, she right. has a shadow of my free will, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's take your, let's take your cat, nice cat there. Um, um, your cat can't make a promise. Your cat, uh, your 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 cat can't think ahead about ways to either help you or hurt you beyond a few seconds. Um, your cat can't uh, fend for itself. Uh, well, cats can do pretty well, actually, if they go feral. Uh, uh, a cat has a lot more free will than a Portuguese man-o-war because a Portuguese man-o-war just has to float wherever it floats. It's blown by the wind. 
It's more like the boulder that's rolling down the mountainside, controlled by gravity and the friction and the whatever wind is blowing. But but your cat has some level of autonomy, but it's not very much. Um, and it's not for nothing that we have the expression herding cats. Uh, uh, cats exhibit their own agendas, their own ability to withstand so the remote control of others quite well. Better, in fact, than dogs. Uh, dogs are more obedient, more more puppet-like, if you want to put it that way. So I would say your cat has more free will than a dog does. That's interesting. No, my dog is on the bed, and, and you're probably right. He is easy to herd. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the key. The reason free will is important is that autonomous agents like us are dangerous because they're it's like herding cats. There are too many things we can do, so we school them, we train them, we encourage them to be law-abiding, to respect the law, to respect other citizens, to be friendly and gentle and honest and so forth. And if we do a pretty good job of that, then when our children, say, become 18 or 21, we're, we're happy to launch them. Go ahead. Go out in the world. Do what you want. Because we trust you to think about what you want carefully enough so that you won't do a lot of damage. But in order to do that, we have to have a system of laws. We have to, uh, and they have to be laws. And that means there has to be punishment. Uh, here's, a, here's a wrinkle that a lot of people haven't uh, thought of, uh, I've discovered. There are lots of psychopaths out there. They're dangerous. Most of the psychopaths, however, they never break the law. Not because they're wonderfully honest and, and thoughtful people, but because they don't want to get caught and put in jail. And so they, they do their best imitation of an honest person that they can muster, and they go through their lives and they don't do any harm at all. The ones that are inept or have even less self-control than the others, they're the ones that they do. They fill the prisons. And we have to take those people out of circulation because they're too dangerous. But if we had a good test of psychopathy, the last thing we should do is put all the psychopaths in restraint. We should allow them the same freedoms we allow to you and me to go out and live life, sign contracts, buy property, make promises, vote, all those things, but recognize that they're subject to the laws. And if they get caught, they're going to be punished. And happily, that 
does a great job of taming. I don't know anybody has any good statistics on this, but I would say most of the psychopaths in the world. Supposing that we have a fairly reliable psychiatric definition of what a psychopath is. A lot of psychopaths are CEOs of great corporations. They don't break the law. They may be mean sons of guns sometimes, but they know which side their bread is buttered on, and they stay on the right side of the law, and they live out their lives. And they, they have free will. The ones that are really deranged don't. I'm glad that you brought up the justice system, just because I think that this is one uh, interesting dimension of Sapolsky's account that has some very real-world consequences. So yep. because he believes that nobody is ultimately morally responsible for their actions in a meaningful sense, this calls for an extreme reformation of the justice yep. system. Yep. And he thinks of it as, I think he, he refers to it as maybe like the quarantine model. Yes, that's uh, very similar to Greg Caruso and, and Dirk yes, yes. model. Yes, yes. But he, that he, he absolutely sense. doesn't work. Oh, um, okay. so well, just let me let me finish and flesh it yeah, out though, yeah, for our yeah, listeners yeah. in that he thinks that if somebody commits a crime, they are not morally responsible for it, no matter how gruesome it is, because it is their actions were caused by all sorts of things in the past that they cannot be responsible for, and consequently, as opposed to giving them a bona fide punishment we should adopt a far more extreme version, for instance, of the, the Scandinavian criminal system, where they're given uh, essentially like amusement parks to, to live in, where they're, they're safe from, or the rest of society is safe from them, but they can exhibit as much freedom as possible. And maybe that, that word, uh, that word's mine, I think here, as much freedom as they want, as long as they're not hurting other people. Hmm. Well, um, I've argued that quarantine systems work when they work, because if you are required to be quarantined for one reason or another, and you refuse, physical force will be used to quarantine you. And if you fight back, they you will be punished. You can't have quarantine without punishment. I mean... You can't have law without punishment. Law without punishment is just, those aren't laws, those are recommendations. And uh, I think this idea that, that it is humane to abandon law and order is extremely unimaginative and ill-considered. Um, Anybody who's ever lived in a failed state knows you really want law and order. It's what lets you go out at night and not worry about your safety. It allows you to take on long-term projects 
you know, building a business, um, buying a house, planting an orchard. All, all the long-term projects we have depend on the security and the reliability of law and order. But you can't have law without punishment. Now, the punishments that we have are obscene. We could do, as the Swedish, as the Scandinavians do, we could do with a lot less punishment. But it's still punishment, and it still should be something that people don't want. That's what punishment is. And it's... Notice that self-controlled people, among the tricks they often adopt, is punishing themselves for things that they do when they know they shouldn't do them. And they exhort themselves and scold themselves. And it works. Not always. But if you've never scolded yourself, you've either led a very sheltered life without much daring or adventure, uh, or you, you may not be as uh, trustworthy and reliable a citizen as you think you are. I have the sense that the Scandinavian countries have much less crime than places like I the United States. I think they do, States. yes. I think but they I, do. But I wonder if there would be even less if their justice system was more harsh on offenders. But I have no idea. Well, I I don't know. They, I think they, they've tuned it pretty well, and I'd like to see us move to a similar system. And I'm... In in my book, Freedom Evolves, I, I had a sort of litmus test for what a good theory of punishment, a good system of punishment should be. The ideal. In the ideal system, the punished culprit should be motivated to say, thanks, I needed that. And if you've ever said that, meant that, or thought that, yeah. And every reformed criminal, and there are reformed criminals, can say and mean sincerely, thanks, I needed that. Interesting. So it sounds like your idea, your ideal sort of uh, penal system involves a retributive component, but also a rehabilitative component. So that well, at the no, end. Oh, go ahead. The, the word ret retribution is, I think, often misused. Okay. Kantian retributive justice is, I think, uh, bizarre, not indefensible. There's there's punishment. Now that does punishment mean re retribution? No. Retribution, I think, strictly means, to use Kant's own example, uh, that even if there was not going to be any society in the future, even if if the world was going to end, we should round up and punish, you know, we should execute the murderers, we should punish the criminals. No, there would be no point in that. The only point of punishment is to create 
credibility and stability in the law, in the agreements that we have. And if, if there's no future, then there's no point in punishment. That's retributivism is when you punish completely independently of any future benefit for anybody. And I think that's a typically inflated philosophical idea. It's, it's absolutist where you don't want to be absolutist. Thanks. I think that, that was an important clarification of what I was saying. So then maybe I should say your ideal form of punishment involves forward-looking, future-looking punishment and a rehabilitative component. So, oh, sure. Yeah. So not just is it good for society as, whole, as a whole, but we want it to serve the individual yeah. as well. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, the example that I like the best, and, but you know, I'm, I may have a tin ear or something because I, I, it doesn't seem to have the grip on people that I think it should, is in sports. Um, would you eliminate um, the penalty box from ice hockey? Would you would you eliminate the flagrant foul rule in NHL? Would you eliminate penalties for unnecessary roughness in in football? I don't think so. They serve important purposes. They're punishments, and and we wouldn't want the umpires and the referees not to treat them as punishments. Yeah. I remember in my bridge playing days in college that the general rule was we play strictly by the rules. That way, no arguments break out. We obey all the rules of playing bridge very strictly. Anybody gets caught reneging or signaling to their partner something very bad. And then you can have a really friendly game of bridge. And similarly, uh, we wouldn't want the umpire in a baseball game deliberately calling strikes because the pitcher's mother is in the audience. No. We want the umpire to call balls and strikes by the rules. And it would the game wouldn't be worth playing if they didn't do that. Now we temper justice with mercy and a lot of the condemnation and blame that goes along with retributive views of punishment can be set aside. As it is very often in tort law, my colleague Evan Kelly has a wonderful book called The Limits of Blame, which looks at this closely. Uh, and you can be found at fault, but not and, and assessed damages, but not blamed, not punished. Uh, and that's a good system. We can we could 
scale back our uh, uh, our delight. This is a point I know that Sapolsky makes much of the the fact that we we relish punishing our enemies. We relish hurting those that hurt us. I view that as one of nature's wiser innovations, harnessing, harnessing that natural vengeful tendency, but harnessing it, taming it, exploiting it. Let's Let's recognize that this is a force that can be used for good. Disapproval. Very powerful force. I wonder, have you ever, I know you're friends with Sean Carroll. Have you ever spoken with him about free will? Yeah. Yeah. You have? Yeah. I, uh, go, go, go ahead. I think he and I are pretty much on the same page on that. Okay. I was just going to say, I, I like your baseball analogy a great deal, but I, I was listening to one of his, this was many months ago, one of the solo episodes of his show, yeah. and he had this really great thought experiment where some things break down a little bit, but it really points to the rehabilitative intuition yeah. involving punishment. So we imagine uh, that this guy, we'll call him Albert, he has just committed a gruesome murder. He murder. He he walks out of the home, uh, leaving trails of blood behind him. And as the police ride up, uh, a bolt of lightning strikes a tree next to him. And yeah. the the tree becomes a, an atom for atom replica of Albert. So we have Albert one and Albert two, and the police are now uh, faced with the question: Well, do we arrest both of them? Like, what do we do here? And I think if I recall correctly, that Sean suggests they ought to arrest Albert too as well because he has the same mental states as Albert one. He believes that he's done this. He, he's probably at the same risk for recidivism. Yeah, yeah. And we ought to have take a rehabilitative attitude in this case. Yeah, I, I have a deep dislike of cosmic coincidence Swamp man <laughs> examples. Mm -hmm. uh, um, my dear friend Ruth Milliken was the first to propose it, and then Donald Davidson picked yeah. it up. Yeah, and I and I've seen a whole workshop, more or less, disabled by people arguing over swamp man cases, and I think it's very important to recognize that swamp man cases are so extreme that. You shouldn't trust your intuitions about them at all. Uh, the atom for atom duplicate. My my way of getting people to see how extreme they are is to say, well, all right, if you're going to allow cosmic coincidences, let's try this one. Uh, the you, Robinson Earhart, are walking along the street, and a bolt of lightning strikes you disintegrating you entirely, and an atom and at, for atom duplicate of you appears, by cosmic coincidence, 
in Ben Franklin's living room in Philadelphia back in the 18th century. Look, it, that's no worse a cosmic coincidence than the usual one. Now, Ben Franklin talking to you would learn all about 20, 21st century science and philosophy and everything that's happened, and the latest elections and so forth. But would he really? Is he, is he getting, he thinks he's getting, he thinks he's got a time traveler on his hands. Does he? Not if it's a cosmic coincidence, he doesn't. I mean, silly. Silly. Um, in this universe, information doesn't do that. You don't get... The accumulation of information is a process that takes time and energy. And uh, you, you don't get cosmic coincidence duplications. And we forget that. We, we imagine that there's some occult transmission between you know, Swamp Man 1 and Swamp Man 2. Uh, but we're not supposed to think that. Well, I mean, here's, a, here's another uh, antidote to that kind of thought experiment. Imagine a universe where the only thing that exists in it is an atom for atom. It's indistinguishable from a lima beam. That's it. In the whole universe, that's all there is. There's a lima beam. Is it a lima beam? Is, is, okay, so you're, you're asking me, is it a lima beam? I'm asking beam? you, is it a lima beam? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think you're right that my intuitions break down because yeah. I want to say that a lima bean is inextricable from its causal history and evolving yeah. and all sorts yeah. of things. So I don't really know what to say. Yeah, exactly. This, I think that's one of those intuition pumps that should be put on the shelf, if not broken up. Yeah. Well, so I love that Swamp Man story, but I do uh, where I appear in Ben Franklin's living room. But I also understand why it's vexed and and not particularly useful. But you know, I I hadn't I haven't read Intuition Pumps, your your book on Intuition Pumps, in many years. But since they've come up now, I mean, this raises an important metaphilosophical point about not trusting intuitions all the time in thought experiments yeah, and yeah. i think you got this from doug Hoff, hofstadter but the idea that you need to turn all of the knobs absolutely right to see the absolutely way that they work right um uh philosophers dream up these thought experiments and thought experiments can be great i i dream them up too i use them but i try to turn all the knobs and i try to point out where the particularly outlandish assumptions, if there are any, uh, occur. And say, look, this is, this is practically impossible for all sorts of interesting reasons, but let's just acknowledge that and go ahead with this for the, for the moment. 
but sometimes it it really matters. Um, I think that one of the big differences, after all, between science and philosophy is that scientists, if a scientist gets a counterintuitive result, that's a treasure. That's a triumph. That's a gem. Wow. If only. But when philosophers find things counterintuitive, they say, well, no, that's counterintuitive. That can't be right. And philosophers, by over-trusting their intuitions, are a, a systematically regressive uh, research program. They're, they're insisting on yesterday's science. They're insisting on old-fashioned ideas, which they've grown up with, and instead of taking a deep breath and staring into the void and thinking, gosh, maybe my intuitions about this are wrong. Right, and the thought experiments can be so uh, deceiving. To use a term that you use often, they can they can have a lot of gravity. I remember one that you, I I don't remember if it's Mill or Locke or, or somebody like that, but they, it, they imagine like expanding the mind, the brain and walking into it like it's maybe a giant windmill or something. Yeah, and not Leibniz. Finding... Oh, Leibniz. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you yeah. could explain it better than I, than I can then. Yeah. Uh, Leibniz thought he could prove that the mind was not mechanical by imagining the mind enlarged greatly and, and you walk inside it and there's all these wheels and pulleys and wires and springs and so forth um, and levers, um, but there's nobody home. There's nothing at all. He says, you won't find any thinking going on there. Well, that's right. And you won't find any thinking going on that you could recognize as thinking inside a brain, but that's where it happens and that's what's doing it. And there is no mysterious pearl stuff, no, no magic, no wonder tissue in the brain. It's all just cells doing their things. And yet somehow that makes consciousness possible. Um, uh, Leibniz is doing that thing that I think is one of the philosopher's chief frailties, uh, mistaking a failure of imagination for an insight into necessity. Yes. Mm -hmm. I love that, that line of yours. I think there are two ways and we, we can branch from right here. One is a talking about a, a much more contemporary argument that's sort of similar to this, that you, I know you've spent a lot of time talking about maybe too much and you don't want to talk more about it, but that's Searle's Chinese room. Oh, and yeah. then the other though is how you would explain uh, all of these cells giving rise to minds and consciousness. And this might be your theory of homuncular mm. functionalism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's talk about Searle's Chinese room, however, briefly. Um, uh, Cyril was very um, angry with Hofstadter and me when we republished his piece in The Mind's Eye because Doug made a simple slip 
although we reprinted Searle's story exactly word for word as it is, um, Searle had said, I think, bits of paper or slips of paper, I can't remember which, and Doug changed it to bits of paper or slips. In any case, it's either slips of paper or bits of paper. And what and what Doug wanted to stress was that Searle was deliberately or maybe inadvertently hugely misrepresenting the sort of program that a computer would have that could pass the Turing test. Let's take a LLM of today, which uh, arguably does a pretty good job of passing the Turing test. Uh, how many bits of paper does it take to hand simulate that program? Trillions? Yes. Trillions of sheets of paper, and Searle couldn't hand simulate it at anywhere near, I mean, it would take him a decade to get a single response out of it. So if you're thinking of programs as simple things that can be written down on a few slips of paper, then of course it looks as if a program couldn't couldn't be what explains the consciousness of a computer. But that's just because you're imagining a trivial program. Um, uh, this was... Uh, pointed out to him again and again, uh, but he refused to acknowledge its force. Uh, and uh, sometimes it got a little bit testy and nasty, but um, I think that uh, Searle made a big point of saying, don't let Dennett or Hofstadter Adopt the third-person point of view. Always insist on the first-person point of view. Recipe for disaster. That's the Cartesian mistake. So, yeah. If, if that's what you think, then you end up with a non-theory of consciousness like Cheryl's. Well, one other thought experiment that it might behoove us to discuss a little bit is Frank Jackson about Mary and the White Ribbon. Frank's been on, on the show a couple of times, and he is a physicalist now. He, he has renounced this paper. Yes, yes, I think has, it's important that he did, did renounce it. Yeah, but it, it, it still has a, a major hold on a lot of people. Yeah. I don't know. You, you sh I'm not sure. Again, it's been a while since I read it. I think it was Sweet Dreams. Is that what the book yeah. was called? Where you, where you talk about this experiment at length. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great example of where people aren't really twisting the knobs enough. Exactly. to come up with the right response. So maybe for, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with this very important, historically speaking, thought experiment, what is it, why does it attempt to, or why does it purport maybe to support dualism? And then what is the knob that's really not being turned here? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, Frank Jackson said, let's imagine a scientist, Mary, who's an expert on color. She learns everything there is to know about color color vision and color, both the optics and the physiology and all the rest. But she herself lives in a colorless world. Uh, I don't know, she has to wear white gloves, I guess, and, and there's no, no colored shadows in her world. And so she's never actually seen anything red. And then finally one day, her captors 
release her and they show her a, a red rose and for the first for the first time she knows what red is she's learned something new but she knew all the physical facts about color so it must be a non-physical fact well first of all the very idea of anybody knowing all the physical facts about anything is one of those extremely it, it's one of those extreme cases that you don't know how to think about. They don't really make sense. What if every what if somebody had all the money in the world? Now what? Does it does it help them? Can they can't buy lunch because nobody has any food to sell them because <clears throat> They don't have any money for hose and rakes and water and so forth. I mean, it's just preposterous. Yeah, I mean, who knows what follows from something like that? So the idea that Mary knows all the physical facts about color is just in itself disqualifying as a thought experiment, I think. But beyond that, I said, if she really knows that much, not everything, but a lot about color, she could figure out what her reaction to a red rose would be. And when she was shown a red rose, she'd say, oh, yeah, red, of course. Now, that may be the first time she experienced red, but she would already have been able to predict what her experience was. Um, I told the story, I, just to make the point, I said, Suppose that, suppose that Mary, when her captors um, release her, instead of showing her a red rose, they show her a blue banana. And she says, you're trying to trick me. That's a blue banana. I know bananas are yellow. Well, how does she do that? Well, you tell me. Uh, you're telling me she couldn't possibly? She couldn't possibly know that it was a blue banana. You have to tell a long empirical story and a very dubious one to show that she couldn't know that. So I think it's a classic example of a thought experiment that by its necessary extremity, the, the thought experiment the experiment doesn't get off the ground unless it's absolute. You have to know absolutely everything. And so all it does really, and it does this very well, is it dramatizes a bunch of assumptions that are very natural and very intuitive to a lot of people. So those are bad assumptions those are bad intuitions that people have. That's all of the shows. Uh, this is a this is totally a, a chance segue, but in this uh, thought experiment of somebody having all the money in the world, you mentioned nobody having hose and rakes, and rakes is the key word here. So when I was reading from Bacteria to Bachenbach, I came across an object that I had not known to exist because I'm not a Northeasterner like you, which is a clam rake. Clam rake, and, yeah. And 
I guess this is a good time to return back to that thread we were on, where you said that evolution evolves. And then you didn't use these terms, but in, in the book, you distinguish between bottom-up and top-down design. And one of this really great ideas in From Bacteria to Bachenbach is that aliens or Martians, if they came to our planet, they would be much more excited to find a clam rake, which is just a very simple two-material object, than they would to find a clam, which is the height of complexity, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if you could ex explain that intuition, because it's a good one, and it's, it's really yes. Um I mentioned David Deutsch's The Great Monotony, and, and he has some nice things to say about that. Um, before there was life, you didn't have pockets of uh, pure iron attached to shiny, smooth pieces of wood anywhere. You couldn't. I mean, that that combination of molecules, of, of atoms, is just an extremely improbable, uh, as good as the impossible, not in the adjacent yeah. possible, exactly. until, until you have tool makers. And you think of all the labor that goes into the mining iron ore and turning it into into iron or into steel and uh shaping a wooden branch this is this is a very sophisticated bit of putting together of elements that you would never find on a lifeless planet uh you you if you found that on a lifeless planet you'd know that well it may be lifeless now but something Pretty darn clever was here at some point doing some things, because that's just not a a not a possible object, uh, even though it's very simple. Its very simplicity is is uh, is a sign. Its purity, if you like, is a sign of its uh, sophistication. Well, there there are all sorts of things involving natural selection that I would love to talk about terminological flourishes and ideas like free-floating rationales or skyhooks and cranes, but I, I'll, I'll point our listeners to Darwin's Dangerous Idea or From Bacteria to Bachenbeck, because I think for the last bit of time we have, I'd like to turn to, I mean, your... Uh, maybe one of your biggest contributions was just to work on minds and consciousness. And yeah. I mentioned when we were talking about Leibniz's thought experiment, your concept of homuncular functionalism. So maybe yeah. that's a good yeah. place to start. Yeah. And, and it's a good place to start because I can use it to uh, confess to one of my biggest philosophical mistakes. In my first book, In Content and Consciousness, I had this jokey line where I said that the language of thought hypothesis as put forward by Fodor and others seemed to me to be not such a good idea because it merely replaced the little man in the brain with a committee. And that was sort of a punchy quip. But I was being seduced by a punchy quip. 
And I later came to realize, no, replacing the little man in the brain with a committee is progress. What we have to do is see that instead of there being one all-powerful agent in there sitting in the control room, the self, the ego, the Cartesian race cogitans, you should recognize that what a mind is, is composed of a lot of agents, a lot of smaller, lesser agencies. A committee, well, an army, hordes of armies of little agents that have particular competences that are somehow, and this is a hard empirical question, somehow enlisted to common cause. And there's competition and there's collaboration. Feral neurons. Is a term a feral neurons is a term you use that yes. I like. Yes. Um I it's an idea that I, I don't know whether I want to push it hard or not, but it's it's a possibility I want to explore. Um many neurons seem to have rather uh boring workaday lives. They they transmit a, just a few uh, fairly simple uh, messages. They do it dutifully, but they're they're pretty they're pretty much just go betweens. But some neurons seem to be more enterprising. They seem to be risk takers. And the idea that we could actually distinguish a, a class of risk-taking neurons that uh, uh, are key to generating the sorts of novelties and stirring the pot and getting off-the-wall ideas into the picture and so forth, that this might well take a kind of neuron which has restored some of its autonomy. It's not just the slave. It's it's got some it it's it's a rebel. It it's it's a feral neuron. And when I trotted this idea out in a number of uh uh neuroscientific conferences, a number of people who, who really know their neurons said, Yeah, 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 yeah. Those are phon economo neurons. Uh there there actually are neurons which that they they had a candidate. Uh for feral neurons. Uh, and I won't go into all the uh, details, but there do seem to be neurons which um, have uh, sort of, as it were, more widespread interests. They are too local. They, they, uh, have their, they have their fingers. They have their dendrites and lots of different pies. And, uh, and so... I think that the future of understanding how the brain does the work it's doing is by recognizing that no two neurons are alike. Not quite. And that's very, very different from a von Neumann computer. Uh, the laptop on which I am conversing with you right now is... Unbelievably hierarchical and bureaucratic. 
and the operating system is dictatorial and there's no part of it that doesn't do what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it this is this is a fascist army of little agents but brains aren't like that it is quite interesting the the an interesting bit about the empirical side of homuncular functionalism that i read from your book is that i read in your book is how neurons are sort of engaged in this quasi darwinian process in which they're battling for resources and to become valuable so that they can remain yeah, alive yeah, and, they, they, they need to survive and all of this again reminds me to bring back to your i know that you've collaborated with him before but michael levin your colleague yes. and he has this idea of uh multi-level competence hierarchies yeah, which, yeah, yeah. at all level of all levels of a living creature like you or i uh, there are smaller right. units smaller and smaller units that are engaged in solving yeah. their own problems yeah yeah absolutely it's uh once you get the idea you keep finding implications applications of it that that make a lot of sense uh, one of the most obvious is if you think about the celebrated plasticity of the brain. Uh, if you punch a hole in somebody's brain somehow, and they get some, they've lost a whole lot, of, you know, millions of neurons, maybe billions. The rest of the brain can sometimes often just take over it can reassign neurons to do the work that those parts were doing and there are lots of experiments that show the limitations and possibilities of this like where's niche's experiments with suturing the fingers of monkeys together and watching the almost overnight change in the uh, jobs being done by motor neurons uh in in the motor cortex of those monkeys uh now how's that done there's no um uh employer in there there's no hr human resources person who's reassigning these neurons they're finding their way to their new jobs why because they need work and they're underutilized, and they see an opportunity to do more work and win more elbow room, more more freedom, more. They get they get a margin of safety that will protect them. They network. They network because that's the way to stay alive. So on on the one hand, we have this immensely complex, uh, capacious, plastic, wet structure in our brains. But then how from this brain does a mind arise? Where do, I mean, things like language that we've already discussed or memes more generally fit into minds? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is... Uh, abandoned Chomsky's idea of the language acquisition device, which was a biologically implausible idea in the first place. 
and recognize that language <coughs> is a socially transmitted technology. I'll use the term that Daniel Dorr, uh, a wonderful uh, Israeli linguist, Daniel Dorr has a book called The Instruction of Imagination about how language gets installed in people's heads and how they use it. And we can understand that uh, uh, it starts as cultural evolution. And once it gets established, then, of course, there's very strong selection for anything that makes a brain better at acquiring language. I think I think it's very plausible to suppose that our ancestors uh, a few hundred thousand years ago had a much harder time learning to speak than we do. Uh, uh, but boy, those who didn't get onto it were were going to lose out in the in the mating game in the replication tournaments, and so the ease of language acquisition, there was all sorts of reactive genetic compensation to make our brains into language-using brains uh, following in the wake of the cultural innovations. So you're using the brain's plasticity to invent witlessly, witlessly, in most cases, invent novelties that catch on. And I'm quite prepared to suppose that at first, language or proto-language was as much a bad habit as anything else. It was like grinding your teeth or mumbling or something. It was just something that, for one reason or another, people found rewarding or they it just was something they did like scratching or itching or or humming it was a, a like a nervous tick but gradually some of these afflictions socially transmitted afflictions began to be used for things and they became words and sentences and promises and questions and that made possible the creation of a mind that could ask a question and then answer it and here's where plato comes in there's this wonderful passage in the theatetus where plato likens knowledge to having an aviary filled with birds and they're all your birds. Great, you got them. The trick is to get the right one to come when you call. And getting the information into usable position is one of the great competences that language permits. Why? Because we can ask ourselves questions. And if you're not a language user, you can't ask yourself questions. And this is a huge 
speed up. It's, it's, it's like the difference between sort of Wikipedia and Siri. You can just ask the question, and if you know the answer, boom, back it comes, and you get it. But if you can't ask the question, you're stuck. Think of when you can't think of somebody's name. You know you know the name. You just can't find it. Or there's a term you can't find. And language provides all these mnemonic anchors that permit us to locate things in our minds that would other they're in there, but they'd be hard to find. So I think language is the great expediter of thinking. Not just because thinking is talking to yourself. It can be drawing pictures to yourself. It can be musing in in it can be dancing a dance to yourself in your mind. It can be all kinds of different things. But this capacity to stimulate yourself in targeted ways, that's the that's the power of consciousness. And it depends on language. I'd just like to return to something you said a few minutes ago that really jumped out at me. And it was that you said it was highly plausible that our ancestors would have had a hard time learning to speak. And this had never occurred to me before, but it's so obvious uh, when I think about it that we not only would have had a very difficult time learning language cognitively, but physically. And as, as I was reading uh, a few days ago, you were writing about phonemes. And yeah. I started just making these movements with my tongue and realizing yeah. how absolutely subtle they are. And yeah. when I think about the degree of articulation we knew, need to be able to do these things with our tongues and mouths, it must have taken a long time to evolve the innervation for this. Like I imagine we could test chimpanzees' tongue innervation and find that they have... Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, I haven't thought about that particular case, but yes, I think that, uh, first of all, the phoneme is one of evolution's great inventions because it digitizes. It digitizes um, the speech stream in a way that means that you have no trouble understanding every word in the following sentence. Um, Is that an alligator on my kitchen table? But, you know, but... But if if I'd said something in Arabic, you you wouldn't be you can repeat exactly the sentence I said in one tone or voice or another, because th- these are you can you can regress to the norm. You've got all these correction devices. You've got basically von Neumann multiplexing built right into your language, so that. Uh, uh, you can distinguish pat from bat, from cat, from hat, all these different words, and effortless, but only because they're digitized. One of the fascinating correspondences between memes and biological replicators are 
or is the, the idea that there are pathological memes in the same sense that there are pathological or negative biological replicators like viruses. So maybe I should ask about, I mean, language is obviously a very beneficial meme for humans, but what are some of the negative consequences of memes and mimetic evolution for humans? Oh, yeah. Um, um, words have their own fitness. Let's just talk about words because because more complex meme complexes are sort of harder to think about. But um, first of all, notice that words often change their meaning, sometimes drastically, and this has been studied by historical linguists over the years. And uh, uh, a word like wench uh, uh, didn't used to mean, that, you know, a uh, tawdry, sexy woman. It was just a woman, you know. And you, yeah, yeah. And so there's all these uh, shifts. Or think of how, how the word, in one of my favorites, is incredible, um, which means almost the opposite of what it should mean if you think about the etymology. I mean, sometimes I give a talk, somebody says, oh, that was an incredible talk. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I really wanted you to believe it. <laughs> uh, uh, so... Words change their meanings in all sorts of ways, and uh, we both enrich and impoverish our language. We lose words, uh, they go extinct, they become obsolete, and new words replace them. And uh, every year the OED publishes their latest list of new words that they've decided to put in the zoo uh, along with the other specimens. Um, and Habits uh, can spread rapidly and not be really appreciated by anybody. Uh, the coarseness of political discourse in the last decade, due in large part, I think, to the uh, coarseness of uh, Donald Trump, uh, is I think a really unfortunate development. We've we've lost the civility, the politeness that used to make life just more manageable, more pleasant. And we have people screaming at each other now in ways that they didn't used to scream at each other very recently. And is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's happened, and it may last for a while. And it, who knows what the future will bring. But um, a lot of people were slowed down thinking about cultural evolution for years because they tended to think of cultural evolution as being perfectly real, but of being just another way for adaptations that enhanced human fitness being passed on perceptually rather than genetically. Uh, so that the, uh, you know, the, the blacksmith's muscles developed because of his uh, exercise, not because of his genes, but he got big muscles and other blacksmiths got big muscles. And this was an adaptation, like the lobsters 
claw or something like that. And they benefited, they improved his fitness. And uh, uh, the idea that being able to play the guitar improves your biological fitness is sold a million guitars a year uh, to, to young men wanting to uh, attract women, probably. Uh, but then the, the very same item can become a fitness reducer. And as Boyd and Richardson say, one of the biggest fitness reducers in human culture is education. Uh, yeah. If, so there if, is. if eating spinach had the same demonstrable negative effect on biological fitness as getting a college education, there'd have to be a warning label on it. Because it's just undeniable that education reduces the number of offspring you have. Uh, now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Once we get to culture, we come to realize we don't care about our biological fitness, most of us. I mean, do you know anybody who, whose main ambition in life is having more grandchildren than anybody else in the neighborhood? Yeah. And people often forego children altogether because they got things that they're more interested in. That's biological fitness reducing, but it's life enhancing. It's culture enhancing. Yes. So uh, uh, until you recognize that cultural items like viruses have their own fitness, you're missing half the phenomenon. I'm happy to say that the 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 tide is turning on that score. I think, and uh, uh, whereas. Boyd and Richardson, not so many years ago, were talking about um, uh, rogue cultural variants. That was their term for fitness-reducing uh, mutations, uh, uh, culturally uh, passed on uh, mutations. Now, they're happy to see that there's, there's lots of rogues because human culture is to a very great degree, orthogonal to biological fitness. Well, I'm, I'm going to make one last comment, or one comment, and then I'll ask a, a, a final question. But after we've just, we spoke earlier about this, these sort of dual evolutionary processes with music, that there's like a, a cultural side, and then there is a biological side. And we see the same thing in the story you've told about language. There's a cultural side in which Proto-Indo-European became Germanic languages and Asiatic yeah, yeah, languages yeah, and yeah. Romance languages. And then we also have um, the cognitive developments, the innervation of the tongue, yes. uh, as I mentioned. So I just find it very striking and perplexing that somebody as brilliant as Noam Chomsky, and there must be something I'm missing, would be so aversive to evolutionary Darwinian thinking in 
language. But maybe that's a topic for uh, another conversation, though, because the last thing I really wanted to get to before we finished was just where this uh, Cartesian gravity, to use your term, comes from, what produces it in our brain. I spoke recently with Michael Graziano of Princeton about his yeah. attention schema theory of consciousness. Yeah, yeah he's very compelling. Yeah, he's yeah. very close to my view. I, I'm very, I'm very fond of his work. I don't agree with all of it, but I think he's largely on the right track. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But so, so where do you see this? Uh, what we describe as phenomenality or quale coming from? If it's not this dualist sort of picture. Well, that is where it's coming from. I think. Uh, the mind is a fabulous thing. It's amazing what we can do with our minds. And most people, I think, discover the delights of their own mind and the fact that they can think secret thoughts and imagine flying carpets and doing all sorts of other things and smelling the roses and seeing things that they've never seen before and remembering things. The mind is full of wonders. And a natural human tendency is to suppose that, well, those just couldn't be mechanical. They couldn't be made the the events that make these happen couldn't be made of carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and so forth um but why not uh, one of the great blessings of the 20th century was the computer and for the first time it allowed people to think seriously and constructively about things with millions or billions or even trillions of moving parts. Nobody nobody knew how to nobody could take that seriously until computers were invented. Then we discovered all sorts of ways that we can think systematically, provably, reliably about things with billions of moving parts. Well, then, we know our brains are composed of billions of moving parts, trillions, in fact. Uh, now we at least don't have to just shake our head and be fogged wonder. We can start asking, okay, I'm going to see if I can figure out how those parts mesh, how they interact, how they feed each other, how they work to do a lot of work. And, and look at all the things we've discovered about things that nobody ever thought a machine could do, and now everybody knows machines can do that. And so we've, we've come a long way. Our imaginations have been both expanded and disciplined by computers, and there's a lot more of that to come. Well, Dan, this is one of those conversations that I've been waiting for for a very, very long time, since well before I even started this podcast. 
So it's been one of the immense pleasures of this show and my my philosophical career getting to talk to you. So thank you so much for taking this time. Well, well, thank you, Robinson. I've enjoyed it. You've asked good questions. This has been fun.